Father, it is so wonderfully sweet to trust in your Son, Jesus, to rest in Him, to rely on Him completely. And I thank you that uh, we have this opportunity to uh, be together, to trust you, to rely on Him, and to hear your word, Lord God. And I do pray that you'll help us respond rightly, that you'll help us understand what you intended that we would do what you desire by faith in your Son. So would you, Lord, just commit this time to you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you think of the word legalism, what do you think of? In the church these days, it's thrown out all over the place, right? It's almost like a weapon to be used at times. Uh, we know that there's certainly legalism uh, in those churches that follow the law and the rules to be righteous before God. That's legalism. That's following the rules rather than being righteous and then doing what God desires. That's the opposite. But then there are those who might say, you know, you're being legalistic by obeying the Lord in certain areas. But the reality is legalism is attempting to be righteous by following a set of standards uh, rather than through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it comes, as we'll see very clearly, in those who would follow the Old Testament law. But there's also very subtle things that can come upon us in the church. There are people who will put peer pressure on you to be like them, in a sense, spiritually. To do the things they do uh, so that you'll be spiritual. Now, if we do things under the Lord and not unto men, that's fine. But if it's an external situation, that is what we would call legalistic. But yet, how can we be uh, protected from these things? Certainly, as we're going to see, there's the obvious legalism uh, in Judaism, whatever it might be, uh, the rules and laws uh, being done uh, to be right with God, that's legalism. But there's also those who would put a pressure on you spiritually, uh, very subtly, to be like them, that you might be like them spiritually. And it's an outward reality that takes away from the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Anything that pulls you away from fully trusting in Christ, you could say, is is a rule in a sense. Maybe it's not an Old Testament law, but it's a rule. It's legalistic in that sense. So, it, And it also, those same people might use it in the reverse way to say, you're being legalistic if you're obeying the Lord. So with that in mind, how can we avoid the, in being ensnared uh, by false teaching? More specifically, what we'll see today, legalism. How can we avoid being ensnared by that? How can we avoid being ensnared by those who might come in unnoticed and creep up and start to have that external religiousness and that peer pressure for you to be the same way? We saw that back in Vancouver, didn't we? We certainly did. How can we escape that? How can we identify and escape it? Well, today we're going to see the first of three things that can shipwreck your faith. You're trusting the Lord Jesus. You're following him. You're doing what's right. And you hit the reef. Uh, we're going to see the first of three things. And so turn your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 16 and 17. Now, I might remind you that although Paul had never personally visited Colossae, uh, he had uh, Epaphras, uh, he had come and informed Paul of uh, their spiritual state, the Colossian state, how they were doing. They were trusting the Lord. They had love for one another, but yet there were threats to their faith. There were those who were trying to, as we will see today more specifically, delude them with persuasive arguments. There were those uh, seeking to take them as spiritual captives, as, as spiritual booty to follow them in their ways rather than according to Christ. And the Apostle Paul responds, he responds to them uh, with the answer to solution to these threats, which is a focus on the person of Jesus Christ, a focus on Christ. Uh, and we saw in chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the first creation. It is through him and by him that all things are created, and he is also the sovereign Lord of the new creation. It is through his death for sin and resurrection that he brings about new life, the body of Christ. He is the head of the body. And everything has been done so that he might have first place. 
And within that, we see that he being preeminent, fully God, fully man, died to reconcile us in order to present us holy and blameless beyond reproach. Isn't that amazing? We're so flawed. We're so messed up. Yet we've been redeemed in Jesus Christ and we will be presented holy and blameless. What an amazing thought. And so after revealing uh, this tremendous reality concerning the person of Jesus Christ, he then begins to address his ministry, the Apostle Paul's ministry, to contrast subtly the ministry of the false teachers in chapter 2. And we see that authentic ministry through what Paul shared has God's men ministering. Those that God has called to preach his word. Those that God has brought forth, not men who made themselves in those positions, but God has done so. Those who are suffering servants of Christ, good stewards of the word of God. And then we saw that God's ministry preaches God's message. Uh, it is Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him and they proclaim and do ministry his way. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man, not just a few in a little place over here, every man that we present every man complete in Christ. And the apostle Paul labored and strived for that. And he was concerned for these Colossians and those uh, Laodiceans and those in Heropolis, that, that Lycos River Valley. He was concerned for them because there were false teachers trying to delude them with persuasive arguments. So he shares that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this that no one would deceive you with very well-brought-together persuasive arguments. And by the way, they are well-brought-together, by the way. We're going to see uh, the arguments people make for uh, a subtle legalism is very well-put-together. It's very deceptive. We need to recognize that I would never fall for that. Well, we need to say, hey, take heed you who stand lest you fall. We need to be very, very careful. So today, we see that uh, we're to resist. Well, we saw that we were to resist the false teachers. We're not to allow them to spiritually take us captive. And that we were to rest in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That he is God, and in him we are complete. And he has brought a total salvation He through the cross. Our sins have been nailed to the cross, obliterated. And he has taken care of all of our spiritual enemies. He is far above them. And it's from this point, because of all that Christ has done for us, because of all that we have in Christ, we have some specific commands concerning some specific threats. And we're going to see the first of three today. We're going to see things that will shipwreck your faith, things that will send you off the side. And there are a lot of... uh I don't know if you've ever been to the ocean, probably have, I'm sure you have. Have you ever seen a ship that's sitting there near the, in the sand, rusted and all sideways, been shipwrecked on the edge? Hey, there are believers like that all over the place who have bought into what we'll see today and their faith has been shipwrecked. God doesn't want that to happen. God does not want that to happen. So with this in mind, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. But we need to read up into that, and I'm going to read up from verse 3, the end of it, up into our passage, because we're going to see our passage starts with a therefore. So we need to see how all this flows together from the very general threats and the absolute wonderful reality we have in Christ to then the specific threats. We see in verse 3, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's speaking of Christ. I say this in order that no one may delude you, chapter 2, verse 4, with persuasive argument. Hey, the Word of God protects us from being deluded, by the way. The Word of God concerning Christ protects us. For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and still stability of your faith in Christ. That's the key. That's the key. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus, that was through faith, by the way, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. It's faith in Christ Jesus, by the way. And he says here, uh, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Don't let yourself be taken away as somebody's evil spiritual booty. In their evil, they pull you away from the sufficiency of Christ. Don't let it happen. He says, for in all, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's God. And in him you have been made complete. In Christ we have everything we need. 
And he is the head over all rule authority. He's over all the demons and all those bad guys, bad demonic uh, demons and Satan. He's over them. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's a spiritual deal. Uh, in the removal of the body of flesh, the circumcision of Christ. Hey, the power of the flesh was removed when we trusted in Jesus Christ. Uh, we were, our hearts were, were changed. We now can worship and obey the Lord by his spirit, as we'll see. And, and then it says, having been buried with him in baptism, which were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When Jesus died on the cross, when we trust in him, our, we were, in a sense, crucified with him. Our old man is dead and we are now alive because of Christ. We've been united to him and his work on the cross. And he says here, and when you were dead in your transgressions, the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions. Amen. Amen. And he says, or having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Amen. And when he had disarmed rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Complete victory over Satan and his minions. Complete victory over sin and death. All in Christ. Therefore, this is our passage. Therefore, because of what Christ has done and who he is and you being in him, therefore, you need to do something, which is to not allow something to happen. He's going to say here, therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival, a new moon or Sabbath day, things which were a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There you go. So we have this therefore, and I've mentioned it before, but we're going to see that we are not to allow anyone to manipulate us spiritually into relying on the shadows, to relying on the things that have no substance, but have the appearance of wisdom in man-made religion. They appear that way because they're biblical, but they're twisted out of their context and the result of us doing so, as we will see, is that we are no longer dependent upon Christ, but we're dependent on these things. So notice our passage starts with the inference here, therefore, logical inference, concerning what he has just said, concerning everything we have in Christ, concerning uh, the reality that in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, concerning him saying that we wouldn't be deluded with persuasive arguments, uh, concerning the reality of, of, the, of the fact that we're not to be taken captive, spiritually captive, concerning the fact that Christ is God and in him we are complete and we've been spiritually circumcised, a heart change. We've been united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We've been united with him. And all the work on the cross applies to us. And within that, our sins have been nailed to the cross, been blotted out. And he has defeated and triumphed over all our enemies, spiritually speaking. With that in mind, therefore, don't let something happen. Don't let something happen. It's all about Christ. It's all about trusting him, completely focused on him, relying on him. Therefore, therefore, don't be deluded. Don't be deceived. Don't be taken captive. Therefore, here... Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or inspect a festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things which were a mere shadow of what's to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These were Gentiles in Colossae. They were not Jews. Now, there could have been a Jew that was there living there, but by and large, there was a Gentile church. They were not Jews. But evidently, the false teaching and teachers, there were those who had brought in Old Testament truth and were trying to delude them with persuasive arguments to doing certain things from the Old Testament rather than according to Christ, as we're going to say. Often, legalism is taken out of the Bible, by the way, out of commands in the Bible, twisted out of their context uh, to make you be more righteous or more holy or more spiritual, in a sense. It's not said that way, but that's really what it's about. But we are to be careful. Even things from the Bible can be man-centered and worldly philosophies when they are packaged in air. When Scripture is brought forth by man and twisted, that is not from God. 
That is from man. It is only when God's word is rightly divided, brought forth as he intended that it is from him. Man takes it and twists it. And as we've seen, there were those with worldly philosophy-centered religious packages uh, bringing forth these things rather than according to Christ. Christ. But we need to obey this command. Therefore, in light of all that God has done for you in Christ, therefore, in light of all you are in Christ, therefore, in light of who he is, God in human flesh who died for your sins and rose from the dead in whom you have forgiveness of sins in whom you are complete, don't let this specific thing happen to you. Well, what is it that we're not to let happen? What are we not to be uh, allowing to be happening to us? Verse 16, Therefore let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. This is an imperative command. It is to the body of Christ. Because Jesus is God in him, you are complete because you have a complete salvation. Therefore, therefore, let no one act as your judge. You go, wait a second, act as my judge? Uh, you know, uh, we have this term going around here, don't judge me. You're being judgmental, you know. And but here he's saying, don't let someone do it. Why would we let someone do that? Well, maybe it comes in a very sneaky way. Maybe it comes packaged in a way where you're actually not feeling judged in a sense, but you're being manipulated into doing something through someone's judgment or someone's wrong discernment, as we'll say. You could literally say it here, let no one judge you. Let no one judge you. You might have a note in your NASB saying literally judge you. And what's interesting here is the term no one is singular, pointing to it's probably a person. Okay? Usually the bad guys come in ones, right? There may be a couple of ones, but they're bad guys. It's a singular person doing it. We saw that before, didn't we? Men will arise from among yourselves, speaking perverse things to draw a disciples after themselves, right? But then, it is not let no one singular judge you all. You all, the Colossians, the believers, those who have had, who have faith in Jesus Christ and have been saved. It's an imperative command, and it's also in a present tense. You could say it two different ways depending on where you're at. Stop allowing this to happen, or don't let it happen. Stop allowing people to judge you, and we're going to see in regarding some certain things. To pass judgment in a sense. Don't let it happen. Let no one sit in judgment over you concerning these things. Let no one sit in condemnation over you, that's what judgment brings, concerning these things. And you say, what things? Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, things which are a mere shadow of what's to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, if you have been a believer and you know the Old Testament, if you are a believer, not have been a believer, if you're a believer, you know the Old Testament, uh, you would recognize these things are specifically from the Old Testament law. You'd go read it right, right off the bat. This is Old Testament. This is Old Testament. And remember, these were not Jews. These were not Jews. These were Gentiles. They were Gentiles. Now, the term food or drink, we'll look at it more specifically later, refers to the dietary restrictions given the Jews in covenant with God. They had a covenant uh, in Leviticus to mark them as his distinct people. That they were a distinct people, distinct uh, as his people. A festival or feast were one of the annual Jewish celebrations from the Old Testament, as we'll see, prescribed Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, day of atonement, booths, or tabernacles. A new moon was the first uh, day of the month where sacrifices were offered. And most of us understand the Sabbath day. It was the sign of God's covenant with Israel. Exodus 31 was also part of the Ten Commandments. And as we'll see, it was a symbol of rest. We'll say. So evidently there were false teachers putting religious peer pressure on the Colossians to obey Old Testament Jewish law. Evidently they were portraying these actions in persuasive arguments. 
It wasn't just saying you need to do this, you need this. There were arguments. There were really persuasive arguments uh, designed to delude, to deceive, by the way. And if you've ever seen, talk to a legalist in a sense, you've seen them, they've got really good arguments, biblically speaking, but they're not right. They're backwards, as we're going to see. They're upside down. They're upside down, but they can have persuasive arguments. And they also might have the, pers- the appearance of wisdom. Chapter 2, verse 20, that seems, that seems right, yeah. That makes sense. Well, they were basically adding to, as we'll see, these shadows from the Old Testament. They were, they're taking these and, and, and calling upon people to do these things. But here, the interesting thing is this term, do not let them act as your judge. Evidently, these people had a spiritual authority in a sense. They were spiritual, whether they were officially spiritually had authority or they were looked up to, spiritually speaking. And we've seen that people who come in who are very spiritual and people begin to look up to them and they begin to follow them and follow their ways. Follow their ways, whatever it might be. It's one thing to uh, follow, you know, the example of Paul and those like that to, to be trusting Christ. It's another thing to follow people in their externals. So here we see that they were putting a religious judgmental peer pressure on people to do these things. In essence, they were judging them, saying, you're basically not godly if you don't do this. You're not really following Christ wholeheartedly if you're not doing these things. You're, there's a peer pressure, a judgmental, making judgments about your spiritual state because you're not doing these things. You see? They're basically, in a sense, telling them to... Ha- take upon them these religious shadows, as we'll say. They're trying to delude them to follow Christ in the context of these things also. Now, let's not forget that God had made a covenant with Israel. And in that covenant, there were dietary restrictions. There were feasts. And of course, there was the Sabbath, which was to be observed. But as we'll see, the old covenant was a shadow to point to Christ. Now, there's many elements of it, but it was a shadow to point to Christ. And yet, in the early church, there were some who were having trouble, some Jews that were. Not Gentiles, but Jews. Jews were having trouble. They had followed these things because they were obeying the truth with circumcised hearts, some of the remnant that really knew the Lord. And then all of a sudden, the Lord is saying, no, don't do this. And they were having trouble. Oh, I, I, I can't go against this. The Lord even had to share with Peter about that, as we'll see in Acts chapter 10. He had a, he had a trouble with it. But these are not Jews. These are Gentiles. These are Gentiles. And so there's a religious judgmentalism, a peer pressure to add some things into your relationship with Jesus. You've got to do these things in a sense, and you'll be more spiritual. You need to do what we're doing. This is how we do it. This is the way you follow the Lord, or whatever it might be. We don't know the specifics, but we know there was a peer pressure. There were bad guys saying to be right with the Lord, you need to... Obey these things. It's in the Bible. Look at right here. I'll show you. It's all there. It says where to do it. They have persuasive arguments, right? Now, with that, you say, "Hey, I don't, I don't understand. Why would these Gentiles, uh, you know, be tempted to follow the Jewish law? Why would they buy into this? Why would they even buy? Why would we be tempted to do this? We need to understand the lure and the temptation of following the shadows. We do need to understand that." You see, those who haven't come to faith, that's all they have. They focus on the shadows. Take, for instance, the Jews. They may keep a kosher kitchen. They may tell you, they may not be able to tell you why they do it, but they keep a kosher kitchen. Uh, they keep the Sabbath. Some celebrate holy days, non-believing Jews. They, they, they do these things, non-believers. You got some denominational people who celebrate 40 days of Lent. I thought it was Lent when I was a kid. What are we celebrating 40 days of Lent for? But, uh, 40 days of Lent, uh, where they don't eat certain things, you know, and before Easter, they have food restrictions, seemingly more spiritual if they do these things. These are denominational, dead denominations, by the way. Uh, we have the sacramental thing, not sacramenta, but the sacramental thing, where people are doing the sacraments to be right before God, or they're doing baptism to be right. you got the Church of Christ. Hey, if you don't do... do uh, do a, uh, a communion every week. Something's wrong with you spiritually. You better be doing these things. You better do it, right? You got cults doing these things. You got the um, Seventh-day Adventists. That says it all, doesn't it? 
worshiping on the Sabbath, doing the Sabbath. You don't do the Sabbath. Hey, you're something wrong with you spiritually. You are not right. You got bad guys. Now the Mormons will teach you you can't be in good standing if you don't if you drink coffee or tea. I was wondering what about rock stars and what they added to that, you know. So you have this here. You have these non-believing groups that have all their shadows. That's how they function. That's how they function. But for us, why would we as believers in Christ be tempted to take on certain things religiously speaking? Well, first of all, we need to remember they didn't come packaged with a warning. People didn't come saying, warning, this is false doctrine. Uh, God warns us, but these things didn't. We uh, need to recognize the things they're going to bring forth and how they bring it are designed to deceive. Designed to see the way it's going to come, the way it's going to be packaged is to delude you, the persuasive argument about these things. And we're not to be taken spiritually captive. These things are so subtly designed to pull us away from the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Now, we need to be warned because obviously we could fail. Obviously, we could fail. Uh, and what's the temptation? Why would a believer go to a messianic congregation and start observing the Sabbath? Why would he do that? Why would a true believer change their diet to be more spiritual? Why would they do that? Well, first of all, from our passage, we see there is religious peer pressure. There were those making judgments about them spiritually, they had a religious peer pressure. If they weren't doing these things, your walk with Christ isn't right. You're not as spiritual as you think you are. They may not say it that way, but that's really the vibe that's coming forth, okay? They would say things like that. And certainly with the desire to be godly, which we have, and thus be accepted by those who seem so spiritual. We've seen that. Families that are so spiritual and you want to be godly, you want to be like them, be accepted, then you might have that temptation to do those things. Now that temptation to be that way, right? Secondly, we are lazy. We're lazy, right? We're lazy people. When it comes to our struggle with the flesh and our walk with Jesus, we can be tempted to think in a sense, not really think it this way, but, but come forth with this understanding that if we had a solid list of things to do, it'd be easier. I just had a way to deal with um, anger. Just had a way to deal with pornography. Just had a way to deal with these things. And here comes the list. Here comes the list. Oh, it's based on the Bible. But what you're going to find out is it pulls you away from the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Folks, legalism also appeals to our flesh. It appeals to our flesh. Now, I'm not talking about the obvious legalism. I'm talking about the little tiny subtle things. They're packaged. They're snuck in. They're snuck in. It makes us look good, and it feeds our approval of man, religiously speaking. We have that pressure. You know, the fear of man brings a snare, by the way. If you fear anyone concerning how you appear religiously, you are in trouble. If you think someone's more religious than that, they're going to think, what are they going to think about me here? You're in trouble. You're already buying into the first step of taking hold of these things, by the way. You be careful. And then lastly, why we might do it is we have a demonic enemy. We have a spiritual enemy who presents these things through his demons. Take a look at First Timothy chapter 4. We're going to see this specifically in regard to uh, not being married and foods. First Timothy chapter 4. And notice what happens. But the Spirit explicitly says, in latter times, we're there, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful what? Spirits and doctrines of demons. That's what's behind it, by the way. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who what? Forbid marriage. Here, there are people saying, you know what? If you don't get married, you're going to be more spiritual. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7? Oh, he says it there, right in the Bible. Don't get married then. You have to deal with the world if you get married. You're more spiritual if you don't get married. See how they could twist that? You see that? And notice what he says here. Uh, and advocating abstaining from foods. There we go. Here's some stuff that relates to what we're talking about a little bit, isn't it? 
which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Now they're going to have persuasive arguments and say, oh, well, that's not created by God, it's got preservatives. <laughs> you know, just everything created by God is good, by the way. He says here, and nothing is to be rejected. Nothing. If it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified or set apart by the means of the word of God in prayer. God says it's all good and giving thanks that sets it apart. We saw earlier in our offertory time, and we'll read it later on, that Jesus declared all foods to be clean. It's all clean. But there are demonic doctrines out there. There are people bringing these forth, people whose consciences have been seared. It's dangerous. We have an enemy. And these things are going to come forth. So we need to be on guard. Because they come more subtly than you think. People around you who may eat a certain way or not drink or this or that or might drink or whatever it is, whatever drinking, not drinking, whatever it is, to, to appear to be more spiritual the way they do it. The way they do it. They make you feel guilty if you're not like them. Now, sometimes we can wrongly feel guilty on our own, but there are people who actually do that in the way they act. A subtle judgment. A subtle judgment. Well, we're to be on guard. We wouldn't be warned if we couldn't be taken captive. We wouldn't be warned. Okay? Some of you might, some of you might say, well, what's the problem with observing some of these things? Some might say, aren't these observances still given by God to remind us of truth? Isn't there some value gained in doing them? So what's the problem? Simply put, our passage makes it clear, and we'll see this. These things are a mere shadow of what is to come but the substance belongs to Christ. We're going to see that when you focus on the shadows, when you focus on the shadows, your participation with the reality is negated. It's negated. So back in our passage, therefore let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink, respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what's to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now let me ask you this question. Is the shadow... The reality. No, it's not. Indeed, observance of these things, as we will see, reveals a misguided and spiritually deadly focus. Things which were a mere shadow of what's to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These old covenant shadows here were fulfilled, were fulfilled in Christ. And we need to see the shadows rightly. We need to see them rightly from God's word that we will not be taken captive by those who will take them and twist it around in a persuasive argument and try to take you spiritually captive. We need to see it rightly. Notice Paul speaks of these things here, food and drink, respect to festival, noon, Sabbath day. Paul's speaking of these Old Covenant, Old Testament religious practices uh, he calls them shadows, and they're all shadows that point to, as we'll see, Christ. Now, the term here, shadow, means shadow. And we understand that, you know, when, you know, let me ask you this. When you stand outside and the sun hits you, you see your shadow, right? You see your shadow. Now, is your shadow you? No, of course it isn't. You know that's not you, right? Well, you got two people, right? <laughs> it's not you. It's just that it's a shadow. But you, the body, you are the real deal. The shadow is not real, but it reflects something about you, your form in a sense. It points to you, right? If you follow the shadow, you're going to find the reality, right? It's right there. You're going to find the reality, right? So we see here, these things ultimately point to Christ. He calls these things which are a mere shadow, a mere shadow which, which of what's to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The term substance here is the word soma, body. It's literally translated body. And it's a play on words. You know, on the shadow, you got the body, right? You got the shadow versus the real thing, right? That's the substance. The substance points to Christ. Jesus Christ, God who took on human flesh. The Christ, the Messiah, who had to suffer for the glories to follow. Who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The Christ. Jesus Christ. 
So when we focus on the shadow, we undermine our relationship with the reality. How weird would this be if I was, uh, uh, Hillary and I are walking along, and I pot a picture of Hillary, <laughs> and I start talking to her. <laughs> and she's right here, you know. I'm, that dishonors her. It dishonors her reality because that is not her. It is a picture of her. It is meant to point me to her. That's what a picture or a shadow is. That's what it is. And so these false teachers were packaging Old Testament shadows religiously in persuasive arguments to try to take captive the Colossians through these observances rather than through Christ. And obviously, when we put an emphasis on the shadow, the reality becomes subservient or non-existent in a sense. Paul says all that stuff are shadows. So don't let anyone act as your judge. Don't be intimidated by peer pressure. Don't be manipulated into trusting these things. It's a misguided focus that denies the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Remember our passage, therefore... Don't let anyone act your judge. Because Christ is God. Because in him we have everything we need. We're complete. Because we've been united to him. The flesh has been taken care of in a sense. Uh, And we have complete forgiveness of sins. And our spiritual enemies have been triumphed over through Christ. Therefore, don't let anyone put peer pressure on you to follow shadows that point to Jesus but are not Jesus. Okay? Now, I understand the shadows, and I understand how they point to Christ in a sense, I think. Uh, but what, what is God's view of these shadows? They were in the Bible, weren't they? What's God's view of them? They're from Scripture. These guys are going to take the Word of God, and they're going to go, hmm, look at this, you need to do this. They're going to package it in a worldly, human way as that which is from God. So, what is God's view? First of all, what about food or drink? Now, in our passage, the word is not food or drink. Actually, in Greek, it is the act of eating and drinking. That's really what it is, eating and drinking, in regards to eating and drinking, right? That's what it says, the action of eating and drinking. Well, in the context of the Old Testament Mosaic Law, God made a covenant with Israel. That covenant, which was done away with, as we see, Jeremiah chapter 31, and then thus the New Testament, and brought forth with a new covenant through Jesus Christ, by shedding his blood, but a covenant back then with them, with with the Jews. He made a covenant with them. And he classified within that covenant, in his words, some food is clean and some food is unclean. Okay, there are those that go back and look at that stuff and say, hmm, if you want to be more healthy, this is how God classified food. You shouldn't eat this, you shouldn't eat that, you should eat this or that. Wait a second, Jesus said all foods are clean. That's even bad right there, that's demonic by the way. That's demonic, by the way. Don't buy into that. But if you want to eat something, fine. That's fine. But don't do not do so because eat or not eat something. That's fine. But don't do so because it's making you more spiritual. It's religious. Don't do that. So here, these things set apart Israel from the other nations as a people of God, as God's holy people in covenant. They showed them as different, as different. But it was never what Jesus, what, what the Jews did externally that made them holy. Jesus made it clear in Mark chapter 7. We read this earlier, but let's turn there again in Mark chapter 7 because this is really clear about food. This is really clear. Mark chapter 7 verse 14. And this is speaking of Jesus. And after he called the multitude to him again, he began to say to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which is going into him which going into him can defile him. Yeah, he's talking about food. This is, this is the Lord Jesus. He hasn't died on the cross yet. He's actually in the ministry, ministry right now, sharing the gospel and he's on his way to the cross, right? And he says here, but things which proceed out of a man are that which defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when leaving the multitude, he had entered the house. His disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding? Do you not understand whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? That's speaking of food, right? Food or drink, right? He said, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach. There's the key. And is eliminated 
Thus he declared all foods clean. Don't let anyone tell you you can't eat something because it's not good before God or whatever it might be. Everything is clean. It's for us to enjoy if it's if it's taken with gratitude because God declared it. And he was saying that which proceeds out of man is that which defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. It's not what you put in, it's what comes out of the heart that defiles. In Acts chapter 10, Peter was shown a vision where God commanded him basically to eat a ham sandwich, which was prohibited by the law. And uh, God had to say to him twice, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. It was unholy because God had said so to set them apart in their covenant. But now God's salvation plan was moving from the Jews to the Gentiles, and he was showing them in a picture that the Gentiles are not unholy in that context. In the context of those who God is going to save and bring the gospel to. So God was making a visible illustration of salvation had come to the Gentiles. We know that food is nothing. It's not that. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In the context of addressing stumbling uh, brothers concerning food or drink, Paul says this in Romans 14, Therefore let not what is good for you be spoken of as evil. That's speaking of the freedom you have to eat and drink. He says here, For the kingdom of God is not... Eating and drinking. It's not about food. It's not about food. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. When it becomes about food, you got bad guys around. You got demonic stuff happening. You have people start talking about, basically they may say certain things about food. We had a lady early on in a, in a, back in Vancouver who who was talking a lot about different food things and stuff, you know, and it was a, a very subtle pressure that, you know, I'm kind of, that she's holy and you got to kind of eat like she does. Not good. Not good. So food was never the issue. It was a shadow to that which would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, how can food setting apart Israel as holy point to Jesus Christ? Well, remember, we partake of Jesus through faith. And Jesus used this metaphorically to speak of eating and drinking. He said in John 6.55, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. The reality is, figuratively speaking, when we partake through faith, we are partaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we trust in him, in what he has done on the cross, shedding his blood, we partake of Jesus and we receive salvation and we are set apart as his people, holy Holy people. The old food and drink restrictions pointed to the substance, the reality, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment. The fulfillment. It is through Christ that we are set apart, not through eating and drinking certain things like the Old Testament shadow. It is through Christ and faith in him that we are set apart, that we are his people. Now, don't let anyone take you captive by saying, you know, if you'd eat this or that, it's more holy or not. Uh, you can eat or drink whatever you want, as long as you don't get drunk, Ephesians 5, or stumble a brother, Romans 14, and 1 Corinthians 8. And again, I mentioned in 1 Timothy, God said, everything is created by God is good, Paul tells Timothy, and nothing is to be rejected. He says, if it's received with gratitude, for it is sanctified, set apart by the means of the word of God. God says it's good, and by prayer. And then he says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. Point it out, Timothy. Point it out. These doctrines of demons. So food and drink were a mere shadow of what was to come. The substance belongs to Christ. What about Israel's feasts and new moon and Sabbath? What about that? We see in 1 Chronicles chapter 23, 31 that on these days also burnt offerings were offered. There are burnt offerings offered. We see in Leviticus 23, God made it clear in his covenant with the Jews that they were to celebrate his appointed times 
and there were seven feasts or festivals that pointed to what God had done and what he was going to do. And certainly there were sacrifices and offerings associated with this, which ultimately, as we'll see, point to Christ. They were a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. Indeed, speaking of all the sacrifices, uh, we see uh, John the Baptist when he saw Jesus, John 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb. They all pointed to Jesus. Christ is our Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 10. The Hebrews were wanting to go back to the law. They were wanting to go back to that rather than Christ. And they needed a lesson. Because only Jesus saves. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's turn there for a minute. For the law... Since it has only a shadow, notice the word, only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. It wasn't the, it wasn't the form, right? Can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. They were shadows. They pointed to Jesus. They pointed to Jesus. For it is impossible for the blood of bull and goats to take away sins. They're shadows. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering thou hast desired. He didn't desire the shadows. That's why you better not be doing the shadows. He doesn't desire the shadows. He desires what Christ has done, that we trust in him and that. He says, therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And after saying sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Notice that. He said, Behold, I've come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. The shadow was removed to establish the reality. That's why we don't focus on the shadows. You say, well, the shadows focus on Christ. They'll be very deceptive. Well, you need to focus on them because they focus on Christ. See how deceptive that is? No, we understand they do, but we don't focus on them. We focus on Jesus Christ. Again, how absurd to look at the picture of Hillary when she's right next to me. How dishonoring that is. How, how, how evil that is in the relationship, right? To give that value that is more than the reality very wrong, very wrong. He says, by this will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Once for all. The festivals and the new moon, those things where the sacrifices were brought forth, pointed to Jesus Christ. They pointed to what he would do. The festivals and new moon were a mere shadow of what was to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. To Christ. You better not celebrate those things. It's a kick in the Lord's face. You better not celebrate them. You better not do that. We should be praising God for what He's done on the cross, not the shadows. We have Christ in us now, the hope of glory. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, personally, I don't celebrate Seder meals. If you want to go eat a meal, fine, that's fine. And I know some people do it with a right attitude because they want to they think about Christ and what happened. But there's so much symbolism in that, and it gets us all turned away. Let's look at Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Let's look at the reality. Let's look at the reality. Okay. So what about the Sabbath? Should we keep it? Is Sunday the Sabbath? Are we having Sabbath right now? What is it? Well, our passage says that it's the shadow, not the substance. Okay, there are people and there are places out there that say you need to have a Christian day of rest. Well, maybe it's a good idea to rest. Nothing wrong with that. But if you're seeing it like this as a Sabbath, as obeying what God said back in the Old Testament, then there's a problem with that. Well, what was the Sabbath? This was a big one. This was the one the Jews, uh, the Jewish uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, they hung their head around this one. You can look at uh, Matthew chapter 12. It's very interesting after Jesus says, that uh, come all over and lay heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And he goes right into chapter 12, and he's in the fields picking grain on the Sabbath. Very interesting. And then he goes into that discourse there. So what about the Sabbath? 
Well, simply, it's a transliteration of the word Shabbat, which means rest. Which means rest. It is used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. On the seventh day, God completed his work in which he was done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Now, certainly the Lord did not rest because he was tired. He rested in that his work was done. His work was done. In Genesis, we see that uh, before sin entered into the world, Adam and Eve enjoyed rest. Uh, they did not have to do anything, any work, in a sense, to walk with the Lord. Uh, they were resting in their relationship with the Lord. Uh, there were no fears, no worries, no conflict, no guilt. Um, and God didn't say it mean it didn't work. God gave them meaningful work to cultivate the garden, Adam. They were resting in their relationship with Jesus. But yet Adam and Eve sinned. And sin brings forth death and death unrest. There's no rest for the wicked. Again, chapter 11, Matthew, Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Give you rest. You're falling in the shadows. You need rest. You need rest. In the book of Hebrews, we see that it is through faith in Christ, not works, that we enter into salvation rest. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And I have Hebrews 3 verse, in my notes, verse 77. That's not it. <laughs> Let's start with verse 7, I think it is. And we're going to read through this quickly. It's a little history of Israel, but we need to hear it. We need to see how it points to actually salvation rest. Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, we know that's from uh, the psalm, remember? Same psalm that says, come let us worship and bow down, right? Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness. That's when they were in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt, where your fathers test tried me by testing me, and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, that was a picture there initially of not entering into the land because of their sin, right? But we're going to see it goes farther than that. We're going to see that sin keeps us from entering into salvation rest. A hard heart keeps you from entering into salvation rest. He says here, take care, brethren. And now he's talking to the whole group, and these are warnings throughout Hebrews. There's a whole group of people who name the name of the Lord, but some of them in there are not saved yet, and they're about ready to, to fall back to Judaism. He's going to say, hey, take care, brethren, lest any one of you, sh sh there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's a good warning, isn't it? For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm till the end. Hey, if you really come to faith, you're going to hold fast. Okay, it's going to be evidenced, okay? While it's said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked me? For, excuse me, who provoked him when they heard? When they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses... And with whom he was, was he angry with, for, angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see they were not able to enter because of what? Unbelief. Unbelief. Therefore, let us fear lest while a promise remains of entering his rest. Not speaking of the land anymore. Speaking of salvation rest, by the way. You better fear that you don't not believe in Jesus. You better fear, okay? Since that you, that you, that you would then believe. That any one of you should fall short of it. For indeed we had the good news, that's the gospel word, preached to us just as they also. They had the gospel preached to them in, in the wilderness. And he says here, he says here, um, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They didn't believe. For we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. 
For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day. Here we go. Kind of interesting, right? Uh, and God rests on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and for those who formerly had the good news preached them to to them fail to enter because of disobedience, he again fixed a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as it had been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, now that's the best translation, had given them rest, hey, bringing them in the land physically gave them rest, then that would have been done. Well, it's not. In the rest, he would have spoken, not spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself rested from all his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through the, following the same example of disobedience. We enter salvation rest through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a day to enter. And you go, okay, that's a long passage, so what am I getting to? How does that have to do with the Sabbath? I'm getting to that. In Exodus 16, we see the Lord feeding his people bread from heaven with manna, and Moses instructs them to collect it for six days, gathering twice as much the sixth day, and, and then uh, not gathering on the second day. They were to rest and trust the Lord. They were to trust the Lord. Exodus 20, verse 8 to 11, we see the Sabbath was which is a Saturday, by the way, was blessed and set apart. We have the fourth commandment, the old covenant between Israel and God. We have it restated in Deuteronomy 5. And on a side note, the Sabbath is the only commandment of the ten which is which has no moral aspect to it and is not repeated in some sense in the New Covenant New Testament. In Scripture, we see the Sabbath day was a time of dedication to God, as Exodus 31. It was for man's benefit, uh, to not only remember the Lord, but to his gracious provision of rest. It was pointing to something. We remember God. We remember he's given us salvation rest in Jesus. You're going to see it's pointing to something. God instituted it. Some animals could rest. These were all shadows pointing to something. Mark chapter 2, we see that it was for man. Jesus says, Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath. Son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. We see it was the sign of the covenant between Israel and God, Exodus 31. Every covenant had a sign. Noah with the rainbow, with Abraham, the circumcision, with Israel, uh, the Sabbath. And we see here, and we saw in Hebrews chapter 4, that there is the promise remaining of entering into his rest. That there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Someone says, do you... Do you do the Sabbath? You say, yes, I do. Every single day. I've come to faith in Jesus Christ and I have Sabbath rest in Him. I'm resting from all my attempts to try to have a relationship with God. It is all through Jesus Christ alone. And I have rest. You see, it all pointed to Jesus. It all pointed to the fact that you needed to rest and not do anything because God has done it all through Jesus Christ. Sabbath was a picture of salvation rest which would be fulfilled in Christ. It's fulfilled in Christ. That's why these people who keep the Sabbath, these Messianic congregations are so messed up. It's so messed up. We have rest in Christ. The seventh cult, seventh day at Venice, it's wrong. They act in judgment over you. You don't keep it. You're not spiritual. Well, that's not true. It's not true. You see... A misguided focus on the shadow destroys our relationship with Christ in that we don't trust him, in that we don't rely on him, in that we subtly rely on the shadows. My observances become primary. I depend on them in a sense. I'm trusting those things rather than Christ. How deadly. How deadly. But that Messianic congregation might say, Exodus 31, 16, 17 says, it's a perpetual covenant forever. Yes, it is, but it's a shadow fulfilled in Jesus, the substance belongs to Christ. We rest in him every day. For we who have believed enter that rest. So then, deceptive false teachers using persuasive arguments to spiritually kidnap believers 
by taking the shadows and subtly elevating them above the realities. One pastor says, shadows are pictures given in advance designed to prepare us for something, but if you found Christ, you do not need the shadows anymore. If you still place primary value in the shadow after the reality has come, you destroy your participation in the value of that reality, and that's true. So then, we are commanded to not let anyone act as our judge in regards to these things. Now, there's other things we're going to see. There's other do's and don'ts and stuff we're going to look at later on. There's other stuff, but you don't let anyone do that. Don't let anyone pressure you into doing these things out of context rather than relying on Jesus Christ. It's Christ. We have everything we need in him. So back to our passage. Therefore, let no one act as your judge as regard to food or drink in respect to festival, new moon, or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what's to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, those are the obvious forms of legalism, right? The obvious forms, okay? But there's other legalism. We get sucked into things. We get sucked into things. Anytime we do something to be more right with God or to appear more right with God, that's wrong. It is through abiding and resting in Christ that we then do what is right. It's the opposite. It may be the exact same thing, but it's where the heart is at. It's where the heart is at. There's obvious legalism like Sabbath observance and not eating meat and Lent and kosher kitchen and trusting in sacraments and baptism externally in that sense, you know, uh, Lord's Supper. We have the obvious ones. And some of you might be saying, well, I'm not a legalist. I'm not like that. I don't do that. Well, we can still get caught up in the trap. Very subtly, we can start doing things by rote. We can come to church thinking, I gotta be, I'm gonna do what's right. I gotta come to church, you know, and then we're not here and our minds are somewhere else. Our minds are somewhere else. Our hearts can be far from our outward actions. Let me ask you a question. If your heart is far from what you're doing, does God see that? You bet he does. Turn to Isaiah 29. Thoughtless involvement religiously, whether it's the right thing or not, doesn't matter. If it's thoughtless involvement is wrong. It's wrong. We can subtly think, I gotta do the right thing. Well, and then we don't, our heart's not there. Yes, you gotta do the right thing. But your heart needs to be there. It's where the heart's at. Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord said, because this people draws near with their words and honors me with their lip service, that's what they should call these new services, I think, out there in some of these churches. Lip service. You got contemporary service, uh, traditional, and lip service. Right? <laughs> All right. But they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be concealed. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us or who knows us? We can get caught up in things too, trying to be spiritual for someone else. We feel this pressure because we know they are maybe looking at us. <laughs> Don't let anyone act as your judge in regard to these things. Rely and abide in Jesus Christ. He has everything you need, everything you need. So how can we keep from having our faith shipwrecked, hitting that reef? Well, we need to, as we have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Receive him by faith, walk in him by faith. We need to obey the command to not uh, allow anyone to put a pressure on us to do things rather than to trust and rely and abide in Christ. Well, maybe some of you are in bondage to externals. Uh, your dependence is on stuff you do. Um, just confess it. Be forgiven. Jesus Christ took care of those sins on the cross. Be forgiven and move forward. He is God, and in him you are complete. And you have a complete forgiveness. And your enemies have been destroyed, triumphed over. Turn to him, trust in him, trust in him alone. 
So then it's a warning for us not to be taken captive, folks. And as a body, we need to be careful individually here to watch out for those who would attempt to do so. If you see that, don't let it happen. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your son Jesus, who, uh, being fully God, and whom the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, died for our sins and rose from the dead. Father, and we thank you that in him we are complete. Lord, may we not trust in anything except for your son Jesus. May we abide in him. May our faith rest in Christ. May your word be what we believe, and may we trust in your son Jesus. Pray this in his precious name. Amen.